Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From talk of an October surprise by WikiLeaks to the potential of polls being accessed by hackers, threats to the election have come a long way since the hanging chads of 2000. I'm Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and TIU, and today on Noon Edition, we're talking to experts about the election and cybersecurity. You can, of course, join the conversation on Twitter at Noon Edition or on air by calling in at 812 812- Eight five five zero eight one one or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. Bob Salzberg is out today, and Joe Wren joins me. Hello, Joe. Hi. Thanks for having me. Our guests today include Fred Kate. He's the vice president for research at Indiana University. Brad Wheeler is the vice president for IT and CIO at Indiana University, and Tree Martin, who's the chief deputy clerk for Monroe County. Thank you all for being here today. Sort of a big question just to get us started. Brad, I think I'll toss this one to you. But just overall, big picture, are our elections secure? I think I would say uh, to first order, they're probably more secure than the phone you're walking around with in your pocket today. Fred, uh, so how, how is that? I mean, well, that's why a, are they more that, secure than That's your a phone? scary thought because the phone is so insecure. Um, yeah, I think there's no question but what right now our voting mechanisms are secure. They're highly distributed. They're managed typically at the county level. They're not online. Um, all of the things that would help make them secure, um, all of those things help make them secure. I think having said that, there's reason to be concerned about the overall electoral process, which is if because of Russian hacks into voter registration systems or into the Democratic National Committee, it introduces some sense of uncertainty so that people either don't go to the polls or they, they, they doubt the results when they come out, that would be the real insecurity that I think we'd worry about at this point. And, and to be honest, it's a pattern we've seen in the past from Russian attackers against national and regional elections in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, it's what we're starting to see now in the United States. So I'll let you jump in here. If this is handled at the county level, then. Okay, speaking for Monroe County, our election is safe. Um, the boogeyman, he's under the bed, but not in Monroe County. <laughs> but, Fred, we have heard some states where their systems have been hacked. Is that correct? Wasn't, um, I'm trying to think of, Ar- Arizona, Arizona was one, Florida mm-hmm. even, right? Arizona, Illinois, and Florida. And there's a fourth state that we don't know the identity of, but the FBI has confirmed there is a fourth state. In in all of those cases, though, remember, what was um, taken was stored registration information, information which often is made available in various anonymized formats to the campaigns and to others in any event. There's no sense at all, I mean, there's been absolutely no even allegation that anything's been targeted that would involve the actual voting. So the process of voting, the voting tally, the, the way in which the votes are counted or stored, all of that is offline and, as far as all indications are, completely mm-hmm. secure. So is, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is this more of hackers trying to gather someone's personal information rather than try to rig an election? I think one of the things that you see going on in, across the Internet right now is with some of the bad guys and hackers is a bit of a spray and pray uh, methodology. And that is a vulnerability uh, comes out. We just we discover that something in Adobe software or something in an operating system has a, a vulnerability. And one of the first things that everybody should do is keep your systems updated and patched. Keep these updates and fixes installed. And so with spray and pray, what you see sometimes is the cyber hackers. They're not even intent on a particular target or a particular objective of causing, you know, bank fraud or causing, you know, getting voter databases or something. They're spraying this stuff out there, seeing where they find a vulnerable machine. Maybe they grab something and run away with it, and they'll sort out what it is later. Is it of something that can be resold on the black market of a list or something? So it's not directly intended at a particular target, but it's kind of like 
you know, breaking glass, grab something and and run. So we see a lot of that going on. And of course, it is a cyber incident. But to Fred's good point, it isn't that they're going in and manipulating your data or they've got right access back to change the data on your system. So what kind of help is there for the different levels of security for these voter systems? And does it matter in terms of if you're a rural town in rural Indiana or maybe a bigger city like Indianapolis or Chicago? Well, if, if you think that you ha- if your voting history has been compromised, you're, you know, you've, something's been changed on your registration, you can go to indianavoters.in.com, put your name in and your date of birth, pull yourself up, see if you're in the right precinct. If you don't have access to a computer, you can give us a call at Election Central. If not, none of those things and you want to be even more secured and more assured, you can come to our office at 401 West 7th. So we've got those things covered. And on election night, you know, we are a closed system. We're not even attached to the Internet. Right. So hacking is impossible at that point. Is it that way across the state? Are voting machines not online? I, I can't speak for everyone, but the system that we use, we are not. It is that way across the state, yes. That they're not online. That's right. And again, just to echo the, the point that, that Brad made earlier, which is just particularly relevant here, which is we have no evidence of anyone trying to change information. Mm-hmm. All we know is that information has been accessed. But remember, information is accessed every day by attackers against all sorts of computers, including computers that have no useful information in them. Because um, the, 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 the software that does that, the malware we call it, is running loose in the wild and attacks whatever it can find. And so in a way, it would almost be surprising if we heard that these databases had not been attacked. That would make you more suspicious if there were not reported attacks against them. Is the security of our election, I'm just wondering, is it really outdated? in your opinion? Uh, First, one thing I would jump in on is uh, in information technology, a lot of times we see efficiency in getting on common systems or building economies of scale. Look at the these great behemoth of companies, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, you don't see 38 different Facebooks. There's really one then you could go to LinkedIn. I mean, there's just a handful. These things tend to grow with economies of scale because there's efficiency in doing it. This is one of those unusual situations where we've really been the beneficiary of a lack of a unified common federal approach because uh, by the Constitution, the states do determine their, how the voting processes will, will operate, and you've got some uh, heterogeneity state by state, you've got some disparity county by county, and exactly how they implement, what systems, how they conform. So it is not a single unified attack profile that the bad guys could go after. Um, uh, Folks who are old enough to be fans of Battlestar Galactica, (laughs) you will recall that their systems became so compromised, that's how they solved the problem, was they had disparate systems that were not connected to each other. It's a little bit of the case we find ourselves in now, much to our good fortune. Sort of a happy accident, I guess. (laughs) We're talking about cybersecurity and whether our elections are safe. Today on Noon Edition, you can get in your question for our panelists, 812-855-0811, or tweet us at Noon Edition. So who would be motivated to tack into this? You mentioned Russia earlier. Fred, why are we hearing all of this about Russia and cyber hacks lately? Well, I think it's because, you know, Russia was pretty clearly identified as the perpetrator of the hacks against the Democratic National Committee and the related uh, Congressional Campaign Committee for the Democrats. Um, uh, And it it was so clearly identified, as a matter of fact, that it, it turned out there were two different Russian intelligence agencies involved in the infiltration apparently in an uncoordinated attack, that they didn't know each other were there, but they were both attacking at the same time, which sort of gave the impression that this was an instruction for higher up or was something that would clearly be approved by higher up. And as I mentioned earlier, Russia has a long and um, I want to say proud, but I would put that in quotes, history of trying to interfere in other uh, elections. And so we saw this um, uh, Russian hackers shut down uh, Ukrainian um, uh, um, um, voter registration um, for a 36-hour period. Nobody could get access to it during that time. Mm-hmm. They've targeted other elections in uh, Western Europe. Um, often it's not so much to do something like elect a particular candidate, what you know, many of the pundits here were talking about were the Russians trying to help one candidate or another. 
but rather simply to destabilize the notion of democracy. Yes. And, and so it's it's the voting itself. It's the notion that you can have a peaceful transfer of power every four years or every two years in the case of some offices that it seems to be upsetting to the, to, to the Russian government and that anything they can do to cast doubt on that or to make it appear that it's not as fair and accurate as we believe it is, uh, that would be a success. And it doesn't have to be as widespread in, in terms of any type of attack. I mean, we can look back in 2000 with the hanging chads when one area in, in a state had upheaval nationally. When people are still talking, people still talk the about perception. that. Uh, it's, right. Yeah. So what are the long-term implications of sort of just floating that idea in people's heads? In my mind, anytime that you can convince a person that their vote doesn't count... You know, if this if this is hanging out there, these you know these bad Russians are going to mess up our election. Then why vote? Because it's not going to matter. It's rigged anyway. So that would be the lasting implication in my world. Yeah, and I think that's the thing we would worry most about. In other words, uh, you know what you'd really like to see is the opposite reaction that people would say, you know, if the Russians think they can mess with us. I'm going to show them by <laughs> voting that they can't because my vote will count. But it will only count if you vote. If you don't vote, it won't count. And so the best thing we can do to fight back is, in fact, to vote and then to ensure the security of these systems exactly as, as we've done here in Monroe County. Voting is an act of defiance. I agree. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we – if we hear word like with the Democratic National Convention that it's been hacked, how do we trace that back and figure out who is responsible? Well, there's lots of digital footprints. Um, you know, sometimes people talk about sending an email. The Internet doesn't send things. It makes copies of things. So when you send an email, unlike the postal mail, where you no longer have the envelope, it's gone. When you write an email message, there is a copy remains perhaps on your PC, perhaps on the server you're attached to. Then there were digital footprints all along the way to where it arrived uh, elsewhere. When you go and click on a newspaper or a website, it creates all these digital footprints on the way there and back. So um, hackers, malevolent uh, actors, will do their best to disguise those footprints, make them appear that they're coming from somewhere else, uh, make them look innocuous. As uh, So here at Indiana University, sometimes we've seen a cyber incident where a server that has no data of any value, it's doing a very pedestrian thing, um, has become compromised. And you say, well, why is somebody going to the trouble to do that? <coughs> Well, they want to use that to then go attack someone else and make it look like, oh, it's just, you know, uh, innocuous traffic coming from a university. Who cares? So there's a lot of effort to disguise those digital footprints, but that's when you see the forensics dig in and trace back as best as is possible to the source of where an attack comes from. So even sophisticated Russian hackers are leaving a set of footprints. There's there's always a a few digital traces out there, but to figure them out uh, is an enormous investment of time and money and uh, unearthing things. And so it's not that you simply just turn on a flashlight and follow the cheese (laughs) to the end. It's a lot like investigating any crime, to be honest. So you look at who's got the motive. You look at the the clues left behind. Uh, you look at the you know the point of entry. Does this look like prior crimes? Does this fit a pattern? Is this something we've seen done before? In the case of these types of attacks, it, you know it actually turns out most attacks on line use a fair amount of common code. You know that you uh, most people who launch attacks online aren't geniuses. They're just downloading something and using it. And so we recognize that we see it again and again and again. When you see an attack that doesn't use that common code, that has something that's original, that you've never seen before, that almost always makes investigators think state actor, that that somebody who's got the money and the resources and the time to invest in trying to make this type of attack. And then you try to figure out, is that true? And if so, which state actor? In this case, I I don't think there's really any expert who who I know who's questioned that certainly the DNC attack was, was Russian in origin. Tree, I was wondering, maybe could you walk us through a little bit about how the votes get tabulated and taken to, especially the national election results? Okay, the votes on election night, each precinct brings to me a little card. We call it a mobile ballot box or an MBB for short. We have a system that is closed from the Internet, 
and also the ballots. We also use paper in Monroe County, so there's two tracking devices, the paper ballot and the MBB card. The ballots are put into the safe room and locked. The MBB card is brought to the tally area. We pop it into our tally reader. I'm sure this all means you understand all of this, don't you? No, but I'm absolutely fascinated to hear this. And as quick as I can put that card in, it is read for that precinct. You can only read a card once. So once that is that once that card is read, I cannot read it again. So it only gets ba- only gets tallied one time. As the night progresses, every precinct comes in, does the same thing, brings the ballots, brings the MBB card, and we proceed down the list. Once all those are finished, we hit the big button, and it tallies everything. Those results are then sent out to everyone that wants to know the paper and all that good stuff. And we also notify the Indiana Election Division at the state level. And that's where all the all the data is gathered and then pushed out to the media as far as national news. Eight one two eight five five zero eight one one. Talking about elections, cybersecurity, and whether your vote is safe today on Noon Edition. You can always tweet your questions in at Noon Edition as well. Um, we we mentioned earlier the DNC emails, but we're also seeing things like Colin Powell's emails getting hacked. And I know you've mentioned that before. So. Is that, again, just about creating this perception that we're out here and we can do those things? Or was that a fluke? That couldn't have been a fluke. <laughs> well, we've seen a sort of pattern of um, senior government or former government officials being uh, attacked. Uh, this has included, for example, an attack on the contractor that does um, travel arrangement for the White House. So we've seen information about Michelle Obama's travel plans. We've seen her passport has been made available online. Um, we've seen attacks against prominent former government officials, Colin Powell probably being the most visible. Again, the way this information is is coming out, it, it's it's not that all of the attacks are necessarily orchestrated, but it does appear that the revelation of the information is certainly being timed uh, with a, an eye to the U.S. election cycle in mind. Um, and it's it's one of the, I think, the, again, it's one of the things that leads to this question of when you're thinking about who might do an attack, you think about, well, who in or outside of the United States has an interest in the in the election cycle? And I think that's what's led to a lot of this speculation is this design to favor one candidate or, or, or another. But, you know, as, as I think we've all said, I think the, the much greater likelihood it is that it's just intended to be destabilizing in the sense of public trust or, or public confidence. I mean, one of the things the Russians have done in the past, and it's something, frankly, we're going to be watching for this year, is they have released false election results so that you had media reporting wrong results because they were infiltrating the, the cycle of reporting to the press to give inaccurate uh, results. And again, this just then causes confusion. Why, if one minute you report one thing's happening, another minute you say, no, no, that was wrong, now we're reporting something else, then the supporters of whichever candidate loses tend to to take that on board and say, well, there must be something going on. In reality, there's nothing going on other than an outside party trying to sow some level of discontent or discord. Masters of the propaganda war. Exactly. I mean, we're talking a lot about Russia. Are they the predominant ones who are orchestrating these attacks? Or why is it that all of a sudden it just seems like it's something with Russia every day? Um, I sort of feel like we should invite someone from the Russian consulate to be present here. I don't. Um, I always worry about sort of the ganging up on sure. um, sort of the topic of the uh, of the moment. It does appear, given the very tense relationship right now between the United States and Russia, and what appears to be a certain amount of of, uh, of almost personal antipathy between uh, President Putin and, and, and President Obama, that that Russia has a particular engagement right now in trying to. Um, target the U.S. in terms of cyber attacks. And um, it's sufficiently significant that one of the things we are reliably told is that when the two presidents met during the um, um, recent summit in Asia, that this was one of the subjects that President Obama brought up during their private meeting with nobody else present, was concern that Russia was doing this and a warning that Russia should, should stop doing it. But if we look at the bigger picture, so not just elections, but all the ways in which information is is under attack today, 
Um, there are a lot of countries very sophisticated at doing this. Certainly China's one mm-hmm. we, we often talk about. The United States is incredibly sophisticated at doing these types of attacks. Uh, I'm not aware that we've ever targeted a, 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 a voting system in another country, but there are many well-publicized reports of, of other things we have targeted. And then there are countries you know you might not expect that have fairly sophisticated cyber operations, Iran uh, being one of them. And so I think it's something we we as a society are sort of going to have to get used to that anything we care about, um, anything, you know, whether it's automated vehicles or drones or our phones or our voting system that involves information is going to increasingly be under this sort of scrutiny about how secure is it and, and who is going to profit by trying to attack it. And to the point of the narrative of what we're seeing in the popular press, et cetera, always focusing on Russia, I would wholly agree with everything Fred said. But you can also note that if it were China, if it were Iran, if it were some other entity causing some or doing some of this uh, and not wanting to get caught, it actually works for Russia to be perceived as the power that's doing it, even sometimes when they're not doing it and the other actors covering up their acts. Yeah. I I want us to take a quick break, and then we have somebody on the phone lines, and we'll get to that after the break. But before we go to a break, 855-0811, you can join our conversation today as we talk about cybersecurity and whether our elections are safe. You can also tweet your questions at Noon Edition, but we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire with co-host this week, Joe Wren. Today, our guests are Fred Kate. He's the vice president for research at Indiana University. Brad Wheeler is the vice president for IT and the CIO of Indiana University. And Tree Martin, the chief deputy clerk with Monroe County. And today, we're talking about the elections and cybersecurity. 812-855-0811 is the number to get in your questions. We're going to start off here by going to Dan from Bloomington. And he has a question about the historical use of voting booths. Go ahead, Dan. Hi. Um, I work in software. I'm a software engineer, and I've done a lot of reading about the security of our elections, and specifically vulnerabilities in uh, the voting tabulation software we use and the voting machines we use. And the reading I've done suggests that a lot of older voting machines that are still in widespread use are incredibly vulnerable, as in somebody could walk in, stick in a flash drive with a little bit of code, and completely alter the election results. And it would take them all of five minutes and this code to be untraceable. And that voting machines that have these vulnerabilities, I mean, these articles are not just conspiracy theorists on the Internet. These are written by well-respected tech experts, well-respected voting experts. There have also been papers published by respected statisticians, including a former president of the American Statistical Association, that have identified suspicious statistical patterns in American election results going back to the introduction of these voting machines, the electronic tabulation machines. And there are organizations that are pushing for hand-counted ballots, counted in public, as a way to counteract this vulnerability. And it seems that my question is, does it really do us any good? I know it's a difficult thing to come to grips with the idea that our elections may not be secure. But does it do us any good to point all of the blame at Russia and say, oh, no, no, our elections are secure, and ignore the fact that there are respected people who have this knowledge saying, hey, our elections may not be as secure as we think they are. We'll let Tree start off here. I I think our panelists are eager to jump in. Dan, I understand your concerns. However, our systems that go out to each and every polling site, we have an MBB card that goes into the scanner. And the scanner is your first stop in tallying, basically. We're actually gathering your information. 
But that MBB card is put into this machine, and it's secured with a metal, like it's a zip. And you cannot get that off unless you have wire cutters. Uh, we do have someone stationed at each one of these locations at this site, and these you'd have to have wire cutters. Now, when this MBB card makes it back to Election Center, after the polls have closed, there is a, an area that we do the tallying. This area is secured. No one else is back there. I have a bipartisan team, a Republican and a Democrat, and then our clerk. And each MBB card is read. The MBB cards can only be read one time. There is no place on the tally machine for a flash drive to be put in. So in Monroe County, our voting is a secure, safe process. Brad, I'll let you weigh in here, too. Yeah, I, I think uh, the caller speaks with some credibility. It's generally true of electronic devices, uh, older electronic devices that have not been maintained have vulnerabilities that were discovered later in their life, and there may be retrofit uh, software or things that can go back and cause bad things to happen. For example, machines running Windows XP right now, a very popular operating system of you know prior decades, that's not being patched and serviced anymore. Th those machines cannot be made secure through normal means right now. So the simple moral of the story is we've got to fund and keep up to date the equipment that we use for our elections. Uh, Hearing Tree, I think sounds like we're doing a good job of that here in Monroe County. But you could imagine counties or others elsewhere where they're saving a dime, saving a dime, saving a dime, and ultimately, perhaps they have not had the controls in place to keep that equipment up to date or replace it when it was really effectively beyond life. I think the caller raises a fair concern. And based on what Dan's saying, this seems like a different kind of kind of hack. Like somebody, it's not necessarily an online attack, but just hacking into a computer's. I walk in department. person, and Dan, I have a group out of Ball State called V Stop, and truthfully, they're on my back constantly. <laughs> But our equipment has certification, and we get recertified every year. So we have to go through extensive testing. And, of course, you know, we pass every time. It was interesting you're talking about literally making a phone call with results or having these paper ballots delivered, too. The paper ballots is another secure way. Let's say, you know, if someone had any questions, of course, I can't tell you which ballot is yours, but I can pull that precinct and tell you how many people voted, even if, you know, the MBB card would not be there. So I have two backups. Okay, Dan, Do I hope... Ever, I'm sorry, go ahead. One more question. Do we ever check our computer tallies by... Oh, gosh, yes. ...counting the paper ballots and ensure that they match? Yes, we just went through a testing last week. We had the ballots that had been pre-voted, and the results had been tabulated, so we knew what we had to have, what everybody, every vote had to be. Then we perform that test, and we have to correspond our results to the known results. So I mean, we do that every election. Results. I'm sorry? I mean, with, with actual election results, not test results. On actual elections, no, we don't. We do it before. All right, Dan. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your calls, for your questions. Okay, the number to call your question, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. And one of the things that we were talking about a little bit during the break is that perhaps not having a more automated system is working to our advantage. Fred, I'll let you sort of respond yeah, to I, that. I think we're living actually in the middle of a, of a very legitimate tension, and this is uh, playing out as visibly now as I can think of it in my lifetime, which is, on the one hand, there's a lot of pressure to say voting should be easier, it should be online, it should be something you can do without leaving home, it should be something you could do for days, not just one day, um, that there, there ought to be ways to take advantage of technology for voting, as frankly many countries have done. On the other hand, we're really saying here one of the reasons we, we know we're secure is because we have a system that, while taking appropriate advantage of technology, is also using some very old-fashioned technologies like a paper ballot, something that gives you real accountability at the end of the day. Now, I'd say the one challenge that still seems very much front and center, though, and that is the, the, the same thing that helps gives us protection, the, the localized approach, the fact that it's not online and so forth, 
also, you know, creates a, a question of its own, though, which is, is every county as responsible as Monroe County is? And so when it comes to voting for a national office, we're now counting on not just Monroe County, but we're counting on every other county, not just in the state, but nationwide. And I think this is one of the this is one of the challenges, which is what are the roles that the that that experts in cybersecurity, that that federal officials, that state officials could play in lending real support to the counties, so that so that everybody has the same type of system that you've just heard described here. And one of the things we know that happened last week was the FBI held a conference call with all of the uh, registrars from the Florida counties, all Florida counties, to discuss the attacks they've seen. But but again. That, that's not, I mean, that knowledge is always a good thing, but it's not the same thing as help. And it's been interesting. The Department of Homeland Security has, you know, announced that it's providing some help to, 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 to registrars who have asked for it. And I think about 14,000 have asked for some form of assistance. But again, this is kind of late in the game. And one problem we have on the security side of this equation is we only think about elections every two years or four years, whereas the the people who really run these systems think about them all the time. And so if we're serious about about providing assistance to assure a nationwide standard that meets that we enjoy here, it's something that's going to be, have to be provided nationwide, not not just when it's in the press. It seems odd to me that we are relying on things like paper ballots and phone calls as advanced as we are. So I'm wondering, I mean, are we sort of dodging the big question, which is like, what? why aren't we just making the system more secure? And how would we how would we go about doing that? Is that is that the answer? The Washington Post about um, a year and a half ago ran a series of very good articles, and the the title was called "A Net of Insecurity," and it was really written for um, someone who's not technically skilled to read and understand the story. Because the fundamental question is, why doesn't somebody just fix this thing? Why do we keep seeing a credit card hacks and this and this and this? And, you know, here Amazon's turning 20 years old and we're still worrying about this stuff. And what the article eloquently laid out is the Internet itself was created to connect people who trust each other. That's what its first point was when it came out of uh, defense and DARPA, et cetera. And so now it morphed into this job that we it was never perfectly designed to do. So the fixing of it would really have to go into the DNA, literally, of what makes the whole thing work. And a second point here is very important is there really is no such thing as the singular Internet. The Internet, by its very label, is a network of networks. And it is all of these disparate hardware devices made by thousands of different companies and all these thousands of other things that connect. And they all work together magically just because of they have a few shared agreements in how they exchange information. And you want to try to go change those shared agreements and make them much more rigorous, much more secure, much more different than they are today, you break, break the whole darn thing. So it's not an easy technical fix on the horizon. But to, to close and, and, and affirm Fred's point, this is so precious to our democracy. Uh, and we have the brains to be able to figure this out. We do just need to get the urgency uh, on the task, not just thinking of it every two or four years. So there's no commission or any group that actively monitors this? And I'm, I'm just yeah making this up, I guess. But it just seems like there's a commission for everything. And Well, Trey, who, who do you look to or who do you ask if, you have, if there's an issue or – in security in terms of okay, Indiana first, Homeland Security or? Okay, first thing I would do is what is my issue? I mean, that's so vague to me. If I'm having an mm -hmm. issue with my equipment, I'm going to reach out to my vendor. If I think it is statewide, then I would reach out to the Indiana Election Division. But if you're a Florida, for example, I mean, what steps do you take? And I mean, is there, there's no national group that's sort of monitoring this or? There's no sustained attention. There are lots of, of uh, various groups. There are academic researchers who do research on this, the, the vendors who tried to really push for these um, networked online machines um, and tried to show how safe they were. And then there was a lot of research showing they weren't that safe. And so then they've now started supporting more attention to security. So I don't want in any way want to suggest it's not an issue that's being 
taken seriously. It's that we haven't thought of it as in a sustained way. And let, let me just give you a practical example. The administration has designated 16 industrial sectors as critical information infrastructure. So um, banks are critical in infrastructure. Transportation's critical uh, information infrastructure. Um, hospitals are critical information infrastructure. There are really only two sectors that are not in infrastructure, and they're both represented in this room. One is universities, and the other is voting. Voting's not considered critical infrastructure by the administration's approaches to cybersecurity. And so one thing we might think about is whether even that fundamental notion needs to be rethought. Is there anything more critical in a democracy than the integrity of your voting system? And maybe that should be the first critical infrastructure ahead of hospitals and nuclear power plants and dams. Mm -hmm. Is this something that we're seeing the presidential candidates, Trump and Clinton, really addressing? Not at all. Um, <laughs> you may remember the last presidential debate when Lester Holt asked about the cyber thing. Mm -hmm. and that was sort of as close as we got, and both candidates managed to immediately turn to another subject um, in response to that question. Um, you know, unfortunately, I mean, the most attention it has gotten is when, um, when Donald Trump has sort of cast doubts about the integrity of the election, um, saying if, if he doesn't win, you should be suspicious of the process. And I would say this is, this is a disturbing thing, no matter who it comes from, whether it comes from Russia, whether it comes from a candidate, whether it comes from an academic. Um, you know, having confidence and having reason to have confidence in our electoral process is incredibly important. And I think we're fortunate in that we do have good reason for that confidence. I mean, it's interesting to think about uh, get on a plane and run around the world and don't really take much currency with me. I assume I can walk into a restaurant in Germany and give them some little piece of plastic and eat and leave and you know, that somehow I'll be appropriately charged for it, et cetera. We have this whole uh, degree of confidence in how all of this works. And uh, the banks and credit card companies have backstopped our assurance there that if there are, is fraud on our account, uh, it gets cleaned up, and that keeps the confidence of the whole thing working. Um, we're pretty vulnerable in the confidence around elections right now where these rumors and stories can take on a life of their own, perhaps independent of the facts. So we keep talking about perception keeps coming up during this, this past hour or so. And I just wanted to bring up something that was in the news this week about uh, hackers into the voter registration. So now we're getting into even before election. Treat, what's going on with this? Okay, well, we're not getting great uh, information of what's going on. Uh, the article that I read said to look for uh, names and date of birth. So um, it would be difficult to catch someone that registered with incorrect information. However, if you tried to use it at the polls, you would have to have ID that matched whatever you had put down. And the neat thing about Bloomington is we do have polling sites that are small and people know each other. And when they walk in, they holler at each other by name. I mean, laugh if you want, but it, mm -hmm. it does help. You know, mm -hmm. hey, hey, Fred, I'm glad you came out to vote today. And if you're not in that system for that polling site, you wouldn't be able to vote. You would get, you could vote provisionally, but you couldn't vote on the machines that day. So the IS, the state police, when they sent out this information, said, "Be sure to go on and check your registration." So can go can you to, explain uh, how this? Yeah, it, how this is going to affect people when they when they do go to vote and how you not, can check. Okay, it's not going to affect people. That's a scare tactic. It's not going to affect you. You know your date of birth. You can go to IndianaVoters.in.com and check your registration. It's on there. You can't check someone else's because you don't know their date of birth. But you can check your own. You can pull up your registration, see that you're in the correct precinct, that your name is spelled correctly, your date of birth is great, and move on. It doesn't have to be a problem. Is there, is there anything about this investigation that you know in terms of like, what, what, what really is this group that was trying to register people? And I know very, very yeah. little about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and it's part of an investigation, so there's not much here, and that's what we're, we're trying but to figure you don't, out. But we're not going to get any results until November mm -hmm. 3rd, and the election is the 8th, and early voting starts October 12th. Right. I don't like the timeline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Today we're talking about the elections and security, cybersecurity, all things elections. 812-855-0811. Toll free at 877-285-9348. I wanted to broaden this out a little bit, and I think you touched on it a little bit, Brad, when you were talking about banks and our idea of security. But just I'm I'm hoping you all can weigh in just on how much we spend on these cyber crimes and the effect these are having on our overall economy. I, as the chief information officer for Indiana University, where we've got about 200,000 devices touching the network at about any moment uh, across all of our campuses, We've definitely, like everyone, had to ramp up our expenditures on technical defenses, on incident investigation when something happens, on education, on ensuring uh, systems get patched. So this is imposing a large cost on society, the, the cost of fraud online with your credit card or banks or you know, uh, online retailers, et cetera, that's a cost that doesn't just go away. It's getting rolled into the cost of goods and services. So this is not really small potatoes irritant. It really, unfortunately, has become a structural issue in our economy, and I don't see it going away soon. And this is something that it affects folks internationally, too, right, Fred? I mean, this isn't just us in our bubble here. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's useful to just be clear, anything that is connected to the internet is impossible to secure entirely. You can secure it a lot. You can secure it so that it's not worth the cost of trying to attack. But I don't, I don't think there's anyone who would say, once you connect it to the internet, once you make it networked so that you can access it by Bluetooth or wireless or it's got an ethernet connection, that you can secure it entirely. So if you think about all of those things that are connected, like all those payment terminals at every point of sale terminal, um, all of the bank accounts, all of the stock uh, trading, you know, the majority of stocks in this country are traded over the internet, it's um, not possible to say with 100% certainty those are secure. And what we're discovering is that there's a pretty high degree of insecurity, but that that insecurity is being, I want to use the word managed. So in other words, we may pay in slightly higher interest rates for credit cards for the amount of credit card transactions that are fraudulently made. They block most of them to be certain, but some still get through in the hundreds of millions or maybe billions of dollars a year. And ultimately, we pay for that, although because of Congress, we don't pay for it directly. In other words, no individual is liable for that. Rather, their bank or the merchant is liable. But then it gets passed on in in higher prices or or higher rates. So I, I think on the one hand, it's important to be aware that insecurity is a growing part of our highly networked lives. On the other hand, just just to be clear so we don't confuse this, the great thing about voting is it's not networked. And therefore, it is, in that sense, taking advantage of of what we might call old technology because it's not become connected to the Internet. And there are lots of examples where you can see this play out in real life. Uh, Thermostats, you know, I look on the wall here and I see a traditional thermostat where you have to go spin a wheel in order to change the temperature. But the moment you put a network thermostat, you put a Nest or something else which then connects to your home network and connects, then I can change it remotely. I mean, it's got security on it, but if I can break through that security, I can change the thermostat. That can become a vulnerability. I can use it as a listening device in your room because the same sensor that measures temperature also can be used to record the vibrations of voice. So, for example, the U.S. government spent a lot of money putting in network thermostats in new buildings. It then discovered these were accessible outside, and it had to remove them all. So it's the networking moment that introduces the potential for insecurity, it doesn't mean everything is not secure. It means that we cannot guarantee you that once you network something, it is secure. So Fred, should I be concerned about my Amazon Echo that I put in so I can tell it to turn the lights on and off? <laughs> you should You should be, you are one of the most networked people I know, and you have a high tolerance for insecurity. But I think that should give all of us some degree of comfort if Brad and all he knows is Agreed. super networked. Uh, I've decided the convenience of uh, changing the thermostat or changing changing the lights without moving and just speaking was worth the trade. <laughs> All right. I want to go to the phones now. Sarah from Bloomington has a question about uh, ISP. Go ahead, Sarah. Hi. Uh, earlier, someone was talking about uh, how you could go and access your your uh, voter information. And then, and of course, you, you know, you couldn't get to anybody else's because you wouldn't know the date of birth. 
And that's that's very easily available information, certainly in families. We all know each other, say at first. But uh, anybody who's who's had, well, anyhow, there's just, my husband was so, so um, aware of how much it's used that he refused to let us put his date of birth in his obituary. Wow, that's interesting. I'll, I'll, Tree, did you want to comment? Sarah, I understand what you're saying, and yes, I, I know my children's date of births, and me too. makes <laughs> me older every day. <laughs> but even let's say let's say that someone had your date of birth, and they go in, and remember those digital f- footprints that you were talking about. If you came in to vote, and someone had changed your registration, and you, of course, would have an issue with this. I can look into the system, and there would be a time and when it was changed. If you would have documentation that proved who you were, which is like a driver's license that hadn't expired, you would still be allowed to vote. That's good to know. We're not going to do anything. I just, yeah, I, I, I'm really not too worried about my, my right to vote. I think, And you shouldn't I think, be. I feel very secure about that. But I, but I do think that people uh, trust the date of birth rather more than they should. That, well, that was kind of my only comment. And, I and understand, but we also stuff, do all kinds of stuff. It's used. We also do a verification of address too, sweetheart. So we've got the verification of address. You've got your date of birth, and you've got your name. So we try, you know, we try to get those three to four yeah, things yeah. covered. Sure. But you can always call us if you don't want to use the internet. I'm, I'm not really worried about this. I'm just. I'm, I was just thinking that the date of birth as a security thing is not really very good. That's I understand. Sure. Thank yeah, you, Sarah. That's sure. And that's a fair point. I mean, every time we log on to Facebook or something, it's reminding us that somebody's birthdays. So we have it right there in front of us, <laughs> that's right? exactly right. <laughs> but for Clarity Tree, your, your point is you can go into the website and, and look at your information and say, hey, I'm Brad Wheeler. Here's my date of birth. I'm registered in Precinct X. You're not making changes to it. You're, no, you're, I'm, I'm verifying it. Yeah, all, all, all I'm doing is I'm verifying it. So even if someone knew my date of birth, they can't go to this site and make any changes. They could, If they knew all those things, they could say, well, indeed, Brad is registered, and indeed he is in Precinct X. But if you did change anything, I would send you a postcard, too. Yes, you do. <laughs> You've received one, I'm I assuming. Have. Anytime there's a change made, we send out a postcard. So even folks who potentially had their information compromised would be getting a postcard, so that would be a red flag. It would be. Brett, you know, just to kind of maybe wrap things up, we're kind of coming toward the end of our time. Is there a demand for cybersecurity experts? Uh, Indeed. I was going to speak to this a moment ago um, with our other hats on uh, for Fred and myself being professors at Indiana University. This is an extraordinary field. Uh, the School of Informatics and Computing here is uh, producing cybersecurity professionals. They're all being placed uh, literally before their last class. Kelly engaged as well. A lot of finding out what the bad guys are doing out there is really moving to the point of machine learning. So if you've received a notice from your credit card company that says, wait, we think something's fraudulent here. I mean, and they're fast. You know, something was shipped from, I don't know, like a Macy's or some credible place, and I got a call and said, this doesn't look like you. And, you know, so their machine algorithms picked that up, that that didn't match Brad's shopping habits and quickly got on it. So the computer science work of that is advancing very, very quickly as well. So uh, uh, for creating cybersecurity professionals and the research that backstops what they actually do, the university is in a really great place, and we're deeply engaged in that. And that education probably can't stop. It's always changing, right? Uh, it can't stop. The uh, the one thing, and Fred's also been very involved with healthcare sectors and others, is producing enough of those professionals and certainly retaining them within the state of Indiana because there is such a demand for them. I feel like I have to say, though, it seems like we're one step behind, though, always, or maybe we wouldn't be in this position. Well, in a way, you're always one step behind of sort of a, a, a new type of threat, whether it's a health threat or whether it's a security threat or, or a financial threat. But but I think the good news here is technology can also help you establish really strong defenses as well. It can also make it possible to really do the forensics if there is an intrusion to know who did it. And so on the one hand, it's like with all things, there's this tension. You know, and the, you get more anonymity and ease of access with technology, but you also get more accountability and 
stronger defenses with technology. So, you know, if you ask more people, would you rather have your secrets printed in paper or would you rather have them on a thumb drive? I think a thumb drive in many ways offers better security despite all of its downsides. Yeah, let me just add, the greatest risk right now for cybersecurity is personal behavior. We have a lot of technical risks out there, but it's someone opening an email that not and inadvertently clicking on a link that puts some bad software on their computer that then leads to another bad thing. So sloppy behavior, uh, that's the risk. That's the great, we've got a lot of technical defenses. Behavior is the frontier right now. Okay, we are almost out of time, but I do want to just allow you each to sort of Final thoughts, what you think going into the election and our security. Brad, we'll start with you. Uh, let's don't fall prey to the propaganda war, the manipulation of perception. I, I do think in everything I see, within a reasonable degree, our elections are secure and Americans should take this seriously and show up and vote. Yeah, I would just echo that and say just as behavior can be a, a, a critical security vulnerability, it can also be a, a critical security strength. And I think a lot of what we've heard today about uh, the behavior of the clerk's office in Monroe County really suggests how true that is. My thoughts would be don't let rumors deter you from voting. And especially as a female, you know, we get to vote. Come on now. Get out there and vote. It's your civic duty. Okay. Well, thank you all for being here. Joe Wren, thank you for filling in today. It's been great for Fred Kate, Vice President of Research for Indiana University, Brad Wheeler, Vice President for IT and CIO at IU, and Tree Martin from Monroe County. Thank you all for being here. For engineer Mike Pashkash and producer J.D. Gray and Sophia Salby, thank you for joining us. Have a good weekend. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.